I'm going to read our scripture passage for this morning, which is from the book of Genesis, chapter 37. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, excuse me, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report of them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were building sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his fathers rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I be your, and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are once again in... Uh, this uh, story called, or, or this, this series we're calling Every Whisper, Every, Every Story Whispers His Name, uh, based on the Jesus Storybook Bible that we, uh, we just gave justice. And um, in this story, we're, we're looking at the life of Joseph. Now, the life of Joseph is much longer than just this little story that we uh, read. Obviously, it's, it's much longer than that. And in fact, it's the longest story in the book of Genesis, and which is kind of remarkable if you think about it. I mean, Genesis 1 to 11 is about creation and the beginning of humanity and the fall into sin and uh, the, all the way down to Noah's, and Noah's Ark or the Tower of Babel and Noah's Ark and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a, a lot to be covered in just 11 chapters. And then when you look at like Abraham and Jacob and these characters, you know, they loom very large in the Bible going forward, uh, along with characters like Moses and David. These are people whose stories are referred to over and over again and whose lives are mentioned again and again in the, the later books of the, the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. But Joseph has this really long story in Genesis, and then he hardly comes up again in the rest of the Bible, only in a couple places. And... He doesn't even get the designation of being like the one through whom Jesus, the Messiah, would come. That goes to his brother Judah. And so it leads you to wonder, why is the story of Joseph so long? And what's the point of this incredibly long story when Joseph himself isn't mentioned an awful lot later on in the Bible? And that's what we're going to explore today. We're going to go through basically the life of Joseph, even though we only read this little bit. And, and where I have to catch you up, I will try. I apologize if you don't know the story very well. I'll do my very best to fill in the gaps for you as we go along. 
But what we're going to see is, is that God is showing us through the story of Joseph that in fact, life is not primarily, and history is not primarily about us, it's about God. What we're going to re- learn as we read through this story is that, where am I? Where am I in my notes? I can't even follow them anymore. I don't know. Oh, I'm still at the top. That's, I thought I was farther, but I'm, I'm not. Um, uh, we're we're, we're going to see that, that God is actually the main character, the chief actor in history. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see three things about God as the main character and chief actor in history. We're going to see, first of all, um, that God acts sovereignly. Second of all, that God acts inconspicuously. And thirdly, that God acts providentially. Point one and point two are a lot shorter than point three. But they're all important, and we're going to go for it right now. Let's have a look. God, as the main actor in history, works sovereignly, inconspicuously, and providentially. First of all, sovereignly. Joseph has two dreams in this story, right? He also has two dreams later on in another story. And the ancients understood that when God spoke to, his, spoke to people, he often spoke to them in dreams. This is not the kind of dream that you and I might have when we have a bad burrito for supper and then we sleep kind of fitfully and we have weird dreams or maybe some medication interacts strangely to you. No, this is a, these are dreams that are specific and important and they come in pairs to confirm that they are actually from God. And the purpose of these dreams is to prophesy to to tell the future. Now, if God is going to really be God, as he says he is, and he's going to give somebody dreams to prophesy and tell the future, well, then God has to make sure that those futures, those, those predictions actually come true. And when you read the entire story of Joseph, what you discover is, is that God is the one who sort of orchestrates everything that happens. We read in this story that Jacob, uh, Jacob, that Joseph's brothers hated him. Actually, we read it several times that Joseph's brothers hated him. We also learn later that he gets sold into slavery and he becomes a slave in Potiphar's house where he does a really good job at his job. He's apparently a very talented guy. He rises up through the ranks and eventually Joseph, uh, Potiphar's wife notices him. She, uh, she uh, finds him attractive. She tries to sleep with him. He says, no way, I can't do that. He gets thrown in jail as a result of it, but he's really good at what he does. And the next thing you know, he rises through the ranks in jail and he meets two characters who work for the king. That's called Pharaoh. And he interprets their dreams. One of them tells uh, Uh, Sorry, he doesn't interpret. Yeah, he interprets their dreams. One of them tells Pharaoh when Pharaoh has a problem that uh, there's someone who can, or has dreams, there's someone who can interpret his dreams for him. So then Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams for him. And the next thing you know, he becomes prime minister of this land. A famine hits. He protects the land by his great management skills over the next number of years. His brothers come from their land to Egypt to get help because they're starving. And Joseph happens to be the the one who's in charge, and he saves them and saves Jacob, and they're reunited, and it's all amazing. And the author to this story, he, he, 
he narrates the story in such a way that you're supposed to come to the conclusion that there is nothing in this story that is happening by chance. But rather, God is behind the workings of every single thing. He orchestrates all of it. And it's written in a way so that you will understand it. And I encourage you at some point in your life to read the story of Joseph in one sitting. Read it carefully in one sitting. It's 13 chapters, 37 to 50 in Genesis. And you will see how the narrator, how the narrator actually did that. Now, here's the thing. If you're listening to me, and there's no guarantee of that, but if you're listening to me and you're processing the things I'm telling you, that God is absolutely sovereign in all these events in Joseph's life, you cannot help but come to the conclusion that, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. Like alarm bells might be going off in your head. And I'll get to your alarm bells in a minute. But point two, first of all, before we get to your alarm bells, is this. God doesn't just work sovereignly as in he's in control of absolutely everything. But God works primarily inconspicuously. Meaning that God works through the normal events of life. What's fascinating in the story of Joseph is there are no miracles. There is no suspension of the natural laws of physics. There are no incredible interventions of God where he comes and he speaks to Joseph or anybody else and says, I am the Lord. Listen to me. It's just through the normal messes of life that God is active. The normal messes of these relationships through, you know, um, favoritism and jealousy and through infidelity, through all these sort of natural circumstances of life, the selfish ambition of these other characters that Joseph meets in prison. It's like a soap opera. Right? It's like a really good daytime soap opera. But God is at work behind the scenes in all of it. And the lesson that you and I ought to learn right now is, is that that is how God primarily works. God is always active in our lives. He is always doing things in our lives. But he primarily works through the regular, everyday circumstances of our lives. I'm not saying God can't intervene supernaturally in all kinds of remarkable ways. I'm sure if you talk to Chris and Annette and Dave and Nina, they will have tons of stories of that kind of thing happening. But what I am telling you is is that when we, living as modern people, don't understand that this is how God... works we 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 don't under we we fail to see that god is alive and personal and active in our lives even when it's just among the regular old things that are happening see in medieval times people lived in a more what's called enchanted world at least that's the word i like to use the, the, the division between the supernatural world and our natural world, that line was very, very thin and it was porous, meaning the supernatural could come into the physical world all the time. So, so people saw God at work in all kinds of stuff. And sometimes there was a scientific reason for the moon looking red today. You know what a blood moon is, right? But people didn't just see it as a blood moon. They also saw it as a sign from God. 
And so it was normal for God to be active in our physical world. Today, because we have put so much trust in science and the explanation, the scientific explanation of everything, we don't see that. And so it's very difficult for us to see how God is at work in our lives. What I'm trying to tell you here is, is that God has always been active in the lives of his people in the boring old regular day-to-day mundane. So open your eyes to that. And stop saying to yourself, well, I don't see God at work anywhere. Well, it's because you're not looking. You're looking for plagues. Pillar of fire or pillar of smoke. The Red Sea parting in front of you. That's what you're looking for. But maybe you should be looking at that great spot in Costco opening up when you have a bum knee and so you don't have to walk too far to get in the store. And you may giggle and say, oh, that's a silly example. And it is. But if God is sovereignly at work in the lives of his people, he was at work right there and then. In that instant, when you got that great spot, so you didn't have to walk so far with your bum knee. Moving on. All of this may be a little confusing and not maybe even all that comforting. God works sovereignly. God works inconspicuously. But that's because you, the thing you really need to know and the thing that holds it all together is this third point. God works providentially. To say that God works sovereignly means that he guarantees the outcome that he wants. Nothing happens outside of his will. Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That's just one of dozens of passages I could quote to you about how God is in absolute control of things. If you want to argue that point with me after, ser- after the service, knock yourself out, text your, your dispute with me, and I'll respond to it if you want. I don't have time to argue that point right now because what I want to get to is the problem with that that we have. And this is back to the alarm bell. When you look at Joseph's life, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, lived in prison for years and years and years, you got to ask yourself, how can God be in control of that? Why would God let that happen? And the answer is God's providence. Providence is a word that doesn't come up in the Bible, but it's a kind of a theological word that we use to understand a little bit what's happening with God's sovereignty in in Scripture. And it has two parts that we need to understand, okay? First one is this. Providence does not teach that God controls the world and controls you and me like a puppet master on strings, just sort of making you do what he wants to do. Providence in the Bible actually affirms God's agency and human agency at the same time. And the story of Joseph is a perfect example of that. Because Joseph, yes, he is sold as a slave and he goes to Egypt and he becomes prime minister. And then eventually his brothers come to him and they're in desperate need of food. And when they meet him, Joseph says this to them. Listen carefully. This is Genesis 45, verse... Four through eight. Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. 
And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save our lives by a great deliverance. Joseph acknowledges the responsibility of his brothers and at the same time says that there's a bigger plan behind the terrible act that they committed. Two times he says, you sold me into slavery. But then two times he says, but God sent me ahead of you. Both of these things are at work at the same time. God controls the outcome, but they freely act, okay, and are responsible for their free actions. There are examples of this through the Bible, but I'm just going to cut to the big one, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus. In his inaugural sermon at Pentecost, the Apostle Peter stands up and he preaches to all the people. And listen to what he says. Imagine if you were there. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Okay? Then he says this. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He doesn't just say God's foreknowledge. He doesn't just say, look, God knew this was going to happen, and so he's like ahead of you on this. No, no, no. He says, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, God had a plan that Jesus would be crucified, but that plan included you handing him over with wicked men to be crucified on the cross. And those listeners are responsible for what they did. Both are happening at the same time. Now, admittedly, that's a mystery. You are 100% responsible for your actions, And yet God is in control of the outcomes of all things. How in the world does that work? That's called what we call this an antinomy. Anybody here ever heard that term before? Antinomy? An antinomy is um, an apparent contradiction. It's not an actual contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction. That's a a paradox is an actual contradiction. So a paradox is like squared circle. Well, you can't have a squared circle because by definition, a circle has no sides, right? So that's a paradox. An antinomy is something that looks contradictory on the surface, but it isn't actually contradictory. We just can't understand it. The most common example used is to talk about light. Light can be both a wave and a particle. How that works, nobody actually knows. I just told you everything I know about light in that comment. But it's true. Scientists have demonstrated that light can be both a wave and a particle, which is what's called an antinomy. It is an apparent contradiction. It's not an actual contradiction. And human responsibility and agency and God's responsibility and agency being both 100% active at the same time is also an antinomy. So there. I just told you why Suffering happens, and bad things happen, and God's in control of it all, and yet we're responsible for the mistakes we made, so you should feel better. 
and many of you don't. And rightly so, because you say to me, thanks for telling my brain how this works. That does nothing for my heart. My heart. I need an existential reason for this to be true. And that's the second part of providence. You need to remember that, yes, God is in control of all things, even though we're responsible for our stuff. But, but yes, God uses all things ultimately for our good, even our suffering. And that's the part of providence that you need to hold on to in the midst of your pain and sorrow. Joseph's story is precisely about that. At the end of the story, Jacob dies. And Joseph's brothers think, well, now that dad's dead, Joseph is going to exact revenge on us for selling him into slavery. And they're like freaked out. And so they kind of, they try to, try to like snow him and say, oh, dad's dying wish was that you would forgive us and put all of this behind us and, you know, pretend like it never happened. And Joseph actually, rather than, uh, rather than attacking them, he says to them this. This is in Genesis chapter 50. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You hear that? God was behind the suffering, but he was behind the suffering for a purpose. This this horrible experience that Joseph went through, it was not random, it was not meaningless. God was using this suffering to accomplish a much bigger purpose. Now, on the face of it, I understand that that is hard to believe. If you have suffered a long time, if your life has, has been characterized by pain and suffering and you wonder if there's ever going to be an end to it and you wonder if there's any purpose to it, you hear me say that and you say to yourself, how in the world is that going to comfort me? I can't really believe it. But that's what Joseph said. And you got to remember, Joseph, you read the story of Joseph in a 10-minute sitting, and you think, whoa, yeah, he suffered, blah, blah, blah. When he was in jail, he was probably in jail between 14 and 20 years, and he was not in a medium or maximum security prison in 21st century Canada. This is ancient Egypt. He's in a dungeon. You can only imagine what the, the conditions were for him to be in that place. And yet he says it. Because you see, if God is who he says he is, it is at least plausible that he can turn our suffering for our good. And it's a problem for us because we can't see it the way God can see it. First, we have two problems. One is our brains aren't big enough, and the second is we're just, we just don't see the end from the beginning. Let me use an illustration on the first problem. Imagine a bear gets caught in a trap. And it's howling in pain because its leg is caught in one of those clamp-shut traps. And a ranger comes along and he wants to help the bear and he tries to get close to the bear and the bear starts swiping at him and he's got to back off in order for his own safety because the bear thinks it's under attack. And so he goes back to his truck and he pulls out a gun and he points that rifle at the bear and the bear goes, oh no, it's going to kill me. This ranger's going to kill me. And boom, he shoots him. And he hits him with a tranquilizer. And now he starts to get groggy. And he goes, well, I'm not dead yet. But then the the ranger gets close. 
And the bear thinks that the ranger is going to come and attack him. And, and because it's one of these, these, uh, one of these uh, traps that springs shut, in order for him to release the spring, he actually has to push it in a little bit to release the spring so the, so the, the trap can open. And so the, the, the ranger, he gets down and he pushes the, the teeth of the trap a little bit into the bear. And the bear howls and he's like, oh, he's trying to cut my leg off. But he's not trying to cut his leg off. He's trying to release the, the trap. And the trap does release. And like, oh, the bear's like, oh, I'm relieved. Hallelujah. But then the, the, the uh, what's the guy called? Ranger. The ranger, he takes a big vat of hydrogen peroxide and he pours it on the bear's leg because he has to protect it from infection and clean it out. And now the bear is like screaming in pain and agonizing because, ah, this thing is burning. He's trying to burn my leg off. And all the while, the bear is going from I'm being relieved to I'm being killed to I'm being relieved to I'm being killed. And friends, that's a picture of the Christian life. (laughs) God allows all these things into our lives and into our world that we don't understand or comprehend and they are ultimately going to be used for our good, but we, we don't have a brain that's big enough to wrap it around it and understand it. And if we did, if we could tell, see, God's, God looks at all of history as one moment. I, I don't know how else to describe that to you, but, ex, but time goes from here to here, and it goes, and you're here, and someone else is here, and someone else is here, and God is outside of time, and it's all one thing to him, and then he sees the end from the beginning. And you can get a bit of a taste of what that's like when you read a story like the story of Joseph. Because when you read the story of Joseph and you know the whole story already, then when he gets sold into slavery, you want to say to him, Joseph, be patient. It's okay. You're going to be all right. And then when he rises up into Potiphar's house and then he gets knocked down and thrown into jail and he's freaking out and you're thinking, Joseph, it'll be okay. I know what's going to happen. You're going to be fine. Hang in there. And when Joseph is thinking about how are his brothers going to react when he, when he responds to uh, uh, introducing himself to them and is the, is the relationship going to be reunited and it's a very hard decision to make and you want to say, Joseph, do it, do it. Reveal yourself to them because it's going to work out. It's going to be okay. You see, you know the end from the beginning and therefore it all makes sense to you. Why do we say hindsight is twenty twenty? Because when we look back, we say, oh... even in terrible times. But you couldn't see it then. And nobody's telling you you should be able to. If you're in the midst of suffering right now and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, I am not telling you, just look for the light at the end of the tunnel. No, what I'm telling you is look at he who controls all of history and promises there is a light at the end of the tunnel. This is why the Apostle Paul says... In Romans chapter 8, in that passage, we like to quote blithely sometimes. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now that is true. But notice that Paul does not say, all things are good. He says that all things get worked together ultimately for good, for us and for God's plan. Now, this is the absolute hardest thing to preach when you're a preacher. 
Especially if you're preaching to a congregation that you know well and you love and you care about. And many of you I do know pretty well and I do love you and I care about you and you have been through the mill. You have suffered. And some of you have suffered for a long time, for long periods of time and more deeply than me. And so it can be very hard to hear this. I get that. I understand that. But what I'm pleading with you is don't look at me and say he knows what he's talking about because he's been there. I've been somewhat there. But I haven't been anywhere near where some of you have been. And I'm pleading with you to listen to me because it's in here. This is what's true. Not your experience, not my testimony, not the stories of your neighbors and your friends or Netflix or the news. What is true ultimately is what God tells you in here. And listen, suffering is inescapable and it is universal. Those two things are true. So whether you believe in God or not, or whether you believe God is absolutely sovereign or not, you will experience suffering. You will not be able to escape it. Nietzsche said to live is to suffer, and that is the truth, friends. But how are you going to handle it? If there is no God... To you to even raise a fist at in frustration and anger. If there is no God, there is no rhyme or reason to the suffering. And the truth is, life sucks, then you die. Or you got to have a stiff upper lip and make the most of it. But at least in the gospel, friends, you have hope that you don't need to be in despair. You don't need to be bitter. You don't need to get, to get lost in your, in your suffering, in your pain, so that you can't experience anything else. Because the gospel says the suffering's not the end of the story. The hardship's not the end of the story. Even for Joseph, his own experiences were not the end of the story. Because you see later, many, 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 many centuries later, God's, God sent another young prince whose heart would be broken he would leave his home. He would leave his father. He would leave his brothers. His brothers would hate him. They would want him dead. He would be sold for a few coins of silver, just like Joseph. And he would be punished, even though he didn't deserve it. And when Jesus died, he used every single one of those experiences, even the bad ones, to do something astoundingly good, provide for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, the cross itself is the ultimate illustration of God's providence. Around that cross, as Jesus hung there, Satan and his hordes cackled with glee at their victory. They watched the Son of God being cursed when he died on a tree and when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Heaven was silence and he was plunged into utter, utter darkness and hell thought it had triumphed. The God-man is dead. And how many followers of Jesus stood around that cross 
and didn't understand a thing. This is the worst thing that could ever have happened to them. Their dream was dead. But in the moment where the divine was the weakest and it's most vulnerable and it's most pathetic, Paul says in Colossians 2, what was happening was, was Jesus was disarming the powers of darkness. Disarming the powers of darkness on a cosmic scale, accomplishing everything that they thought they had lost. You know, William Cowper is a hymn writer from the 1600s. And he was a Christian, but he suffered horribly from depression virtually his entire adult life. So badly that he ended up in uh, mental institutions for periods of time because he tried to take his own life. More than once he tried to take his own life and he ended up in these institutions. And these, again, this is the 17th century. These institutions aren't like our mental health institutions. You can only imagine what it was like to be in these places. And he wrestled deeply with the goodness of God as he suffered. And he wrote a most astounding hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And this is what that hymn says. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. One more thing. What about a life that seems filled with suffering right until the end. And, and to see the, what's redemptive about that suffering in the here and now is, is almost impossible. Well, I got to admit, I'm, I'm really loving having a podcast <laughs> so that I can say, I don't have time to answer that question now, but that's what we're going to talk about in the podcast. This is a painful, difficult, hard subject But friends, if we want a God big enough to stop our suffering, we've got to believe in a God big enough to redeem our suffering. And he promises to do it. Let's pray. God Almighty, your teachings are sometimes oh so hard. And we read this great story of Joseph and we think, Wow, look how God blessed Joseph. But what, when, when we think about it, it's, it's an, an astounding story of a man's suffering so that he can be used by you to save the world. But that's exactly the story of Jesus. 
The God-man who experienced infinite suffering voluntarily. That's the difference between him and Joseph. Voluntarily he did so that we could experience your grace and salvation and the redemption that he won for us. Thanks be to God that you use evil against itself ultimately. Father, may that be a comfort to us now, even in the midst of the trials we face. Only by your power can we cling to you in faith. So please work that power in us. We don't deserve it, but we need it and we long for it. In Jesus we pray, amen.